Welcome everyone to our second annual ACBDC Leadership Conference Fireside Chat. It's exciting to have, uh, you know, for the most part, a new set of participants this year. I think Kirk Adams is a return guest, but for everyone else, uh, we welcome you all for the first time. And uh, really, we appreciate you being here. It's an opportunity for our members uh, to get a chance to meet leaders in the blind and low vision field. And we are very excited tonight to have Cindy Watson, the CEO of the San Antonio Lighthouse from San Antonio, Texas. Welcome, Cindy. Thank you. All right. And then we have Kirk Adams, uh, the president and CEO of the American Foundation for the Blind, uh, based in Arlington, Virginia. But Kurt is in upstate uh, Washington I'm, right I'm now. I'm in so. Seattle, Washington. Down yes, Seattle, indeed. Washington. It's Welcome, raining. Kurt. It's raining. It's okay. Well, you're, 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 you're true to form then. <laughs> and then we have Ken Fernal, and he is from AVRE in Bing, Binghamton, New York. So welcome, Ken. Thank you. Happy to be here. And it is snowing. So. It's snowing. We got snow, rain. Uh, Cindy, you got better weather in Texas, don't oh, you? Oh, it's like 68 today. Very <laughs> Sorry, nice. Guys. Very nice. It's sunny. Rub it in a little. It's okay. Sorry. <laughs> and, and then we have uh, Eric Bridges, Executive Director of the American Council of the Blind from Alexandria, Virginia. Welcome, Eric. Great to be here. How have you been doing lately? <laughs> Just been kind of hanging out. Hanging <laughs> Not out. Not much going on. <laughs> Not yeah. much going on. Welcome. Uh, and my name is Dan Spoon, and I'm the President of the American Council of the Blind from Orlando, Florida. So uh, we're really excited to have our guest this evening, and I thought... First, we would go around and uh, just do a quick uh, introduction of the organization that you work for and share with our members a little of your mission and, uh, and purpose. So, Ken, we'll go ahead and start with you. Sure. Um, as you said, I'm with AVRE, and that stands for the Association for Vision, Rehabilitation, and Employment. Our mission is to create opportunities for success and independence with individuals who are blind or visually impaired. Um, we are an, ability, an ability one organization. So we, we have an employment program where we employ individuals who are blind or visually impaired. And we also have a, uh, rehabilitation program as well. We cover nine, um, counties in upstate New York. Uh, most of them are very rural. Um, we're about, I think 65 employees now. Um, I've been with the organization, um, Gosh, 32 years now, started in manufacturing and worked my way up through several layers of responsibility. And I've been the CEO since 2014. Fantastic. And Cindy, uh, you know, if you could tell us a little bit about Lighthouse San Antonio. Sure, I'd be happy to. So um, very much like Ken's organization, the San Antonio Lighthouse for the Blind and Vision Impaired our mission is to empower people who are blind. And we do this by participating in the Ability One program as well. Um, so we create employment for people who are blind, as well as providing a full array of services, rehabilitation and, and, and employment services. Um, so we, we cover San Antonio and the surrounding counties. Uh, we serve about 7,000 Texans adjusting to vision loss each year. Um, and that ranges from 
uh, early childhood all the way to seniors uh, with the goal of aging in place and adjusting to their vision loss. Um, we have uh, about a, just under 500 employees over about half of which are blind or vision impaired and that those employment uh, opportunities range from CEO <laughs> all the way to um, service positions at our base stores as well as manufacturing opportunities in our manufacturing plants in San Antonio. Oh, good. Before we go on to Kirk, for Ken and Cindy, both of you, all, uh, did you start out as NIB agencies uh, and, and Ability One agencies and then add in rehab services, or is it something you've, you've covered both of those fronts with both the rehab programs and the industries uh, at the beginning of your organizations? I mean, maybe Ken, you first, and then Cindy. Yeah, we, we've been around since 1926 um, mm -hmm. in one form or another. And then obviously when Javis Wagner O'Day uh, was started in 1938, um, or Wagner O'Day, um, I believe we became involved with that as an Ability One, uh, now Ability One um, mm -hmm. organization at, uh, close to that time. And then we started uh, offering vision rehabilitation services in the 60s. So we've been doing a long time. Long time with both programs. Right. And Cindy, how about at uh, San Antonio Lighthouse? Yeah, sim similarly, we actually started out as a service organization. Uh, we were founded by the local Lions uh, chapter. And then we, as the JWAD program came online and employment opportunities were created through that program, we started participating. But I would say that our rehab services have uh, grown in terms of scope and size and, and coverage area significantly over the past 15 years. Very good. And Kirk, uh, tell us a little bit about a AFB and, uh, sure. and the programs. Yeah, the, that I yeah. know you're under a lot of transformation and kind of settled down here over the last few yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. So we've, uh, well, we're 100 years old. We were, we were founded in 1921 and we've, we've uh, had uh, lots of different focus areas, lots of different program uh, programmatic areas over, over 100 years, obviously. Uh, we were founded by professionals in the field. There were two professional associations, um, an association of teachers of the blind, which were mostly teachers in residential schools, and um, association of workers for the blind, who were people um, working in workshops and homes for the blind, and asylums for the blind, and those types of uh, institutions that existed at that time. And both of those associations felt there needed to be a, a new central nonprofit agency that could um, use research and data to identify the greatest opportunities for inclusion of people who are blind, the greatest barriers, and then to um, you know, facilitate collective action around those things. So we're really doing the same thing. Uh, we are focused uh, on employment uh, very clearly and looking to change the landscape in employment by using research and data, creating knowledge, transferring knowledge to uh, decision makers and influencers, um, facilitating the increased capacity of, of blind people in leadership, and uh, just look, look, looking to change the landscape. And um, everyone, uh, everyone on this call is, uh, is a, a great advocate for people who are blind. Everyone on this call is doing great work. And it's a privilege to be here. Thank you, Kirk. And uh, Eric, I know uh, our crowd is mostly fairly familiar, but could you, uh, you know, just refresh everybody on the uh, 
history of the uh, and background with the American yeah, Council well, of the Blind. Yeah, we are uh, we're sixty years old. We're celebrating our sixtieth anniversary. So been around a while. Uh, member driven organization. We've got sixty eight state or special interest affiliates. Uh, we've got members in every state and uh, you know, we exist to advocate on the behalf of not just our members, but the broader blind and visually impaired community on a whole host of issues uh, in order to make life, frankly, better for you know the nation's blind and, and visually impaired uh, citizenry. And it's been... Uh, it's been uh, a great ride, I would say, so far. Uh, I've been in, uh, employed by the American Council of the Blind for, it'll be 15 years in uh, June. I've been in my current role for about five years, but I've been a member for nearly half my life since 1999. Uh, starting my, my senior year of college, I became a member. So, and the advocacy is what, what got me to, to uh, become a member, I needed help advocating at my university. And so the folks at ACB uh, got involved and, and helped me out. Well, and Eric, since you've got the microphone, uh, kind of our, for our next <clears throat> question, and you know everybody kind of knows who Eric Bridges is inside of ACB, but I don't know if they know kind of your life journey. So, you know, take a few minutes, you know, five, 10 minutes and kind of Tell us about the, you know, Eric Bridges growing up as a blind, low vision person and kind of, you know, your, your journey to get from, uh, you know, the, the plains of Iowa to uh, Alexandria, Virginia. Sure. Actually, I grew up on the bluffs. The it's bluffs, the not the cool plains. Area, okay. yeah. you, were on the, you were on the bluff area. By yeah, by, by the yeah. Mississippi, actually. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, uh, yeah, I was born and raised in, in Dubuque, Iowa, which is right along the Mississippi River across from Illinois and Wisconsin, and uh, went to school at the University of Iowa, um, lost, began losing my vision at the age of four and, until I was about 17, and I lost the last bit of vision that I, that I had. And so uh, growing up, uh, my, my best advocates were my parents, uh, ensuring that I got uh, a good education that I learned, you know, uh, Braille when I needed to, that I learned how to use a, a cane when I, when I was needing to, even though I didn't want to, uh, you know, it, the, the, I had challenges with the school district, not wanting to provide me with those, uh, accommodations. And, uh, my parents actually had to wind up filing a lawsuit to, intervene in that. So I learned about advocacy at a pretty young age, at about the age of 11. And so, uh, you know, I went to school at the University of Iowa, uh, got a degree in journalism and mass communications, and I uh, joined a fraternity and I learned a lot about life being in a fraternity. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty great. I, I also learned it was, it was a, a window into leadership um, and, and uh, difficult decisions and having to uh, deal with people who were your friends that were not behaving well. And so as part of the leadership of, of that particular chapter, you know, I, I learned how difficult it can be to be a leader at an early age. And so um, it was, it was, 
it was fun. It was challenging. Uh, my high school social life went something like this. Uh, Friday nights, uh, looking after my two sisters while everybody else was out doing whatever they were doing. Right. So I got to redefine myself in college uh, or define myself. And not no have little me. sisters in a fraternity. Oh, That's right. Yeah. In, instead of others defining me, I got to define myself and who I wanted to be. And so it was pretty powerful. Uh, and, uh, you know, I did an internship uh, for Senator Tom Harkin in Washington, D.C., and I fell in love with Washington uh, for that summer that I was out here, which it happened to coincide with the 10th anniversary of the ADA. And I, I was able to uh, participate in a lot of really cool events with the senator and, uh, and other members of Congress and decided that I really would like to live out here and actively began looking for employment opportunities out here and uh, had lots of doors closed in front of me. <laughs> um, but uh, the folks at National Industries for the Blind, uh, you know, helped me. Uh, they found out that I was on the Hill and I got a job. And actually, uh, I was in the waiting room uh, at National Industries for the Blind waiting to be interviewed when a guy named Kirk Adams came walking in and sat mm -hmm. down. So I've known Kirk since before I had a job. Uh, technically. Mm. Yeah. But uh, that's what, that's what me got, got me out here. And, uh, you know, I worked for national industries for the blind for several years, about six years uh, doing different, different work. I learned how to sell, products to the federal government for a couple of years. I learned the whole home uh, project through the U.S. State Department, uh, sold a bunch of mattresses abroad. That was pretty cool. Had never sold anything before. Uh, and as well, uh, then I, I really wanted to get into policy. And so I learned at the, at the feet of a great woman named Pat Beatty who was a leader in the American Council of the Blind. It's part of how I became interested in ACB. She was the public policy director at, at ACB or at NIB for many years. And uh, she's the one that taught me uh, the, the bread and butter of going up and, and uh, making your pitch. And I did that on behalf of NIB and the Ability One program. And that's where and how I got to know uh, better people like Kirk and eventually Ken and Cindy. So uh, I had the opportunity to do a fellowship through the Brookings Institution and uh, went and worked up on Capitol Hill for nearly a year for a member of Congress uh, from Minnesota and essentially was the free help in the office, but functioned as a legislative assistant. I had a portfolio of issues. And uh, while I was up there, I learned a lot, covered a lot of different issues that didn't deal at all with disability policy, but lots of things. And uh, during that time, what I really realized is I wanted to come back to uh, the, the blindness field and advocate on the behalf of our community. And right around that time, the role of Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs opened up at ACB, and I applied, and uh, they hired me, and I've been here in different roles uh, for nearly 15 years. 
So growing up in, in public schools and going to Iowa, how, how much interaction did you have with other blind and low vision, um, you know, students, peers uh, at that stage of your life? Almost none. Mm-hmm. There was another kid. His name was Derek. He was in the same grade that I was in. He had star guards and uh, really barely needed any sort of magnification. And here I was uh, going from having very good vision, participating in sports to, you know, losing my depth perception and not really being able to participate in sports and refusing to use a cane and, you know, bumping into glass door dividers. <laughs> oh, I remember <laughs> those stuff, days. Right? So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I hate glass door dividers to this day. Um, glass doors, period. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that too. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Um, but yeah, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have uh, other peers. And so it made things challenging. I mean, you know, I was already like a, just a ball of confidence with my acne and my braces you know, in high school. And then you add on the fact that I was losing my vision and most of it was gone, you know, by my junior year. So it's like, oh yeah, this is, this is wonderful. And I didn't really have anybody else to talk to about it, which is part of what made the student affiliate in ACB so attractive to me once I got to college. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you met your wife through ACB, right? I did. I did. We weren't both working here. So let's just get that out of the way. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, Rebecca, I met Rebecca uh, while I was working for National Industries for the Blind, which is in Alexandria, Virginia, just across the river from Washington, where the ACB national office was then located. She was doing an internship at ACB and uh, we were introduced through a mutual friend and uh, literally have been together ever since. So that was uh, the summer of 2003 that we met. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Cool. So, Hey Ken, so tell us a little bit about your, uh, your personal story. If you don't mind, we'd yeah, love to sure. learn more uh, about you. Yeah. Yeah. A little different than Eric. Um, uh, diagnosed almost about the same age. Uh, it's about eight years old when I was uh, determined to be legally blind. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, macular degeneration juvenile, so very similar to Stargardt's. Um, so I did receive services initially, um, uh, for a number of years. And I actually, I was born up here in upstate New York and grew up in Tampa and then relocated back here. So during, during my school, um, age in Tampa, the services, they weren't great. Um, and I ended up at some point probably seventh or eighth grade becoming kind of vain and decided I didn't want to be that kid that stood out um, and convinced my parents that, Hey, I don't, I don't need those large print books anymore. Um, So was able to uh, manage my way through, through high school Uh, family of of six kids, by the way, myself and my sister, um, both of us have the same eye disease out of the six kids. Everybody else is uh, normally sighted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, got, got to that point where I just wanted to get through high school. That was my goal. Um, no, um, perception of going to college. I wanted to go to work and that's what I did. Um, graduated high school, um, took on a couple different jobs and matured a lot and 
vision got worse. Um, and then I was working for an electronics assembly organization, uh, ended up getting laid off and decided at that point that I was going to go to community college. And then lo and behold, once I started accepting services again, I'm like, hey, I'm actually pretty good at this stuff and was able to, to succeed. So I, I ended up going on finishing my associates and then a bachelor's degree um, as well and have been at, as I mentioned before, ABRE, um, geez, 32 years. So started um, in manufacturing part-time, um, worked into um, full-time manufacturing, then into a, a role of uh, started up the quality assurance testing lab and then became the quality assurance um, manager and then took on a Jeez, it's been too many years now, director of industries, new business development. Then I was promoted to VP of operations, um, sat in that role for about 12 years. And then uh, as my predecessor was um, approaching retirement, I was, uh, I, I was groomed um, to be able to uh, compete for this position as CEO. So um, happy to be here and, you know, in that role, as I mentioned before, since 2014, um, I'm going to go a little personal life as well. Been married for 30, coming up on 33 years. We have two grown children. Um, my son is 28 and married. Kirk, we're waiting for that day as, as you talked about a little bit earlier to become grandparents at some point. Um, and my daughter, uh, is 23 and she is a phys ed teacher with an emphasis on adapted phys ed. Um, so we're, we're proud of her as, as well. So I think that covers a lot of it, Dan. Um, that's... So when did you kind of uh, first really get involved with others that were going through or had blind blindness or vision loss? Uh, was that kind of maybe it sounds like perhaps after your your high school years? Yeah, no, no. I didn't have any other kids that um, were visually impaired that I went to high school with. Um, and started to run into a couple individuals during college. Um, and then actually, I mean, kind of an interesting story, you know, when I ended up going to work for ABRE, um, that was the last place I wanted to go for. Um, it was my perception of, of what it was then. It was the blind work association. My perception was not great. Um, so when I finally did, I, I was newly married, um, laid off, going to college. I needed a job and um, had, as Eric mentioned, a number of doors that were closed um, for me uh, because of my vision, but needed to go to work. So my uh, voc rehab counselor convinced me to go check out what was Blind Work Association. And my opinion changed the first day. Uh, it wasn't what I perceived it to be um, and certainly were totally different organization now than we were then 30 plus years ago. Um, so that was really, you know, my first introduction to working with large numbers and socializing with large numbers of people with, with vision loss are totally blind. Mm, more, more as work colleagues at that point in time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. Yep. And uh, how was how was the adjustment from Tampa to uh, upstate New York? Yeah, it's it's different, um, but we, we really like it here. It's a great community. Um, so it's, I 
I'd rather live here now at, at my age than in Tampa at this point. Mm. You know, maybe maybe when I get ready to retire, there might be some uh, some wintering down in that area. But um, we we really like this area. Well, there you go. You can be a typical Florida snowbird. There, there you go. Lots of them. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh well, welcome, uh, Cindy. What, what, could, would you mind sharing a little of your personal uh, journey? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so it's so interesting to hear these stories. I have friends on this panel that I'm learning so much about today. It is fan- and it's some- great. I love it. Yeah, just- <laughs> a lot of similarities. So, um, so I um, I was diagnosed um, with juvenile macular degeneration at the age of nine, and um, like Ken and Eric, I hadn't met another blind individual until I think I was a sophomore in high school. There was a junior high. Uh, new kid uh, that enrolled in our school district. Her name was also Cindy, and she was totally blind. And we didn't have a lot of interaction, but it was just interesting to actually meet another person who was going through a similar experience. Um, But I spent um, a tremendous amount of energy in many, many years uh, trying to fake (laughs) being sighted. And uh, I... I socked away my large print volumes of books um, in my locker and um, wouldn't bring them to class and threw my Coke bottle glasses in in the locker because I didn't look cool in them (laughs) and resisted using a cane and all of the things. Um, And, you know, sometimes I reflect upon that and I think how it would have really been great to have had some blind mentors to really help me understand um, how, you know, to embrace the diverse, who, who I am as an individual and as a yeah. person who's blind. Um, but you know, we all have our own journeys and we learn a lot from those journeys, even if it's the hard way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, anyway, so I went to school in, uh, Galveston County, which is South of, uh, Houston and, um, went to the university of Houston, Clear Lake for both undergraduate school and graduate school. Um, I was, when I finished my uh, special ed degree, bachelor's degree, um, I was trying to decide where I wanted to work. And I, I had a less than ideal student teaching experience at the, um, in the town where I grew up. And so I wasn't quite sure what my journey, what my career was going to look like. And my voc rehab counselor from the Texas Commission for the Blind encouraged me to apply for a vocational rehabilitation teacher position of which I had zero experience. Like I'd met, you know, one other blind person and I faked being excited. (laughs) (laughs) What the heck was I going to teach these clients? But I applied and they hired me. And so um, I will tell you, I learned a tremendous amount um, about, uh, probably learned more from the clients that I served um, then I taught them. <laughs> they taught me so much. We just learned how to be problem solvers together and figure things out. Um, but it helped me tremendously. I, I learned so much uh, and adjusted to my vision loss through that experience as a rehab teacher. Uh, so I was with the Commission for the Blind for eight years in various roles. Um, I was a case manager, uh, also did some employment assistance working with uh, community employers and uh, college-bound and, and, and job-ready um, clients over that eight years. 
And uh, then I left the state and went back to school to get my MBA. And I thought that I was, you know, closing the chapter on my serving uh, people with vision loss and embracing this exciting new career in business. <laughs> And uh, when I finished my MBA program, um, one of the one of my colleagues who was looking for internships came across the National Industry for National Industries for the Blind uh, Fellowship for Leadership Development Program, and he sent me the link. And um, I'd heard about Ability One a little bit through the work that I did with the Lighthouse of Houston, but wasn't really familiar. Um, and so I applied for the fellowship and. I was hired. Um, so for two years, I um, I was I had three three eight month rotations during those two years. Um, one eight month rotation in South Texas uh, in Corpus Christi at the South Texas Lighthouse, and the second eight months at NIB headquarters in Alexandria, and then the last eight months in Las Vegas at the Blind Center of Nevada, and. Uh, during that two years, I was also involved with the business management training at University of Virginia, Darden School of Business. So like a, a mini MBA, kind of a refresher, what I just learned during the MBA program, but it was unique because I had the opportunity to actually study um, a nonprofit agency as a project. Um, so I got some application experience through that program, and it was it was uh, really good for me because I wasn't working while I was in um, my MBA program. So it gave me some tangible experience of applying those skills. Um, so when I finished the two-year program, I um, went from like, what am I going to do with this degree to where do I want to go? I had a lot of um, agencies that were um, recruiting me to come to work for them. Mm -hmm. And um my husband um, followed me around during these two years. <laughs> well, Were you married 20, at the time? <laughs> yes, all, okay. all, 20, all 20 years, I will say. He's probably followed me around all 20 years. But um, <laughs> um, So he was going to school while I was involved in the fellowship program, and he got recruited to go to work for Schlumberger out of Houston, which took us back to Houston. And uh, I went to work for the Winston-Salem Industries for the Blind and worked remote for them for the first four years doing business development. And then I actually moved. We moved to Winston-Salem um, for the last four years that I worked for them. And during that time, I was um, recruited to serve on Kirk's uh, AFB's national board. And um, got to know AFB, fell in love with their programs, and one of their um, long-term uh, leaders retired, uh, Judy Scott, who was running the Center on Vision Loss and Web programs. Mm -hmm. And so I was recruited to uh, come back to Texas. There's a theme here in my <laughs> journey. <laughs> of that yo-yo back. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so back to Texas we go. And mm -hmm. um so I was with AFB for about a year and Kirk and I had a, just a small overlap. And then I was with the Dallas Lighthouse for a year. And then I was recruited to um, become the senior vice president at the Seattle Lighthouse for the Blind. Mm -hmm. And uh, was there um, for four, three and a half years, uh, two and a half years as the president and CEO. Mm -hmm. And then um, 
about a year ago. Um, one of my many mentors, Mike Gillum, who was the CEO of San Antonio White House, uh, announced that he was retiring. And uh, it was a really hard decision for my family to make. Um, my husband was settled again, started over again. He was at Blue Origin as an engineer and was loving it. My kids love the Pacific Northwest. Um, but to have the opportunity to come back to Texas and lead um, one of the best organizations, I think, in the Ability One program was um, an opportunity that I just could not pass up. And so I joined the San Antonio Lighthouse um, in August of last year. So we are settling into San Antonio and it's great to be back in Texas. And how, you know, you mentioned your husband a couple of times. How, how did he deal with your journey? And what occupation does he have that he apparently he has some flexibility to to be able to relocate? And how well, did the kids say, handle it? Yeah, I would say I would I would say that I, I say often that he must love me <laughs> a lot <laughs> because uh, he so he's an engineer um, by training and he was an oil and gas um, out of out of Houston. When we moved to North Carolina, he was working internationally, so he just needed to be near an airport. So we had a, ah, he had flexibility okay. then. Um, when I when we made the move to Seattle, he actually switched, changed careers, and went from oil and gas, oil and gas to uh, aerospace. Mm. And uh, now he's a stay at home dad, and um, he is um, shuttling the kids to golf and baseball, and you know this and that and everything, and uh, also remodeling a home that we just built. So, um, yeah, yeah, he loves me. That's all I can say. <laughs> I will hear from Kirk, but I hear a reoccurring theme here that to be a leader of an organization, it, it comes with a very supportive spouse. And I, I understand that completely. So, Kirk, I, we'd love to hear your personal story a little bit. Okay. Well, it's going to sound a lot more linear and planned than it really was, but um, <laughs> all's well that ends well. So I uh, was born a sighted kid in Aberdeen, Washington. Uh, my parents were still in college. They were getting certified to become teachers. And then they had their first teaching jobs, uh, had a little brother came along. And then my retinas both detached when I was in kindergarten and uh, I became totally blind and you know, 20, 48 hours, something like that. Oh, wow. So, so I had my first, you know, un, un, first of many unsuccessful, <laughs> painful retina surgeries at age five. And, um, you know, at that time, uh, my parents were told that I couldn't come back to the neighborhood school. I had to go to the state school for blind kids. So uh, we were living north of Seattle. They visited the Washington State School in Vancouver. Uh, they were not very impressed with what they saw there at that time. Now, now it's an awesome school, but uh, my retinal surgeon was at University of Oregon Medical School in Portland, and someone in his office said, "You know, the Oregon State School is great." And so they, they, we, we went and visited. I still have some memories of my first visit there, and uh, they liked what they saw. They quit their jobs in Washington State, moved the family down to Oregon, so I could go to the Oregon State School. And uh, I did that for first, second, and third grade. And I'll tell you, as a research-based organization, I'm going to tie a little research in here from, from time to time. So mm -hmm. if you look at success factors, um, 
in regards to employment. So successful blind employment, one, one of the main success factors is, is blindness skills. So O&M skills, um, ability to you know, read and write in whatever the chosen format is, um, use of technology. So I was there first, second, and third grade with a you know, hundred other blind kids, and I was drilled in blindness skills. So just became a very strong Braille reader. Um, you know, the model was that you would get your skills to the point where you could go to public school. So starting in third grade, I went to the school for the blind in the morning and traveled independently as a, I guess I was eight, about 12 mm-hmm. or 14 blocks to a, a local public elementary, went, went there. Mm-hmm. And then in fourth grade, um, jumped right into sink or swim in public school in small town America. And uh, mm-hmm. um, it was, it was, <laughs> it was very much sink or swim. And I, I learned, learned to swim and rapidly. And, uh, you know, another success factor is high expectations. My parents had very high expectations. They expected me to get good grades. My dad's a high school basketball coach expected a, you know, you, you're involved in sports. You're part of the community. They didn't necessarily know how to support me in doing those things as a blind person, but they certainly had those expectations. And like others who've gone before me, we, we had no connection um, with, with blind people at all. There was never another blind student in any school I attended. Um, again, live, live, living in small towns, we moved back to Washington State when I was in high school. And um, that's where I got another success factor, which is early employment experience. And that again, had nothing to do with, with me. I was interested in sports. I became the sports editor for the high school paper in Snohomish, Washington. And along with that came a, a weekly column in the Snohomish paper, the Snohomish Tribune. So I got to write a high school sports column every week and interview coaches and players and fill out my timesheet and get paid and uh, foolishly spend that money. So Kurt, uh, you got yeah. to do that. You got to do that. And I was working at Taco Bell and pizza. In the summer. <laughs> <laughs> I saw your Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> yes. well, yeah. And then, um, you know, I, I was in the college bound track. There were about 30 of us. We'd have, you know, Senior year, I had physics, first period, math analysis, second period, chemistry, third period. Walked into my chemistry class. The chemistry teacher said, You're, you know, it's not, it's not safe. You can't do chemistry. You can't take this class. And I, I didn't have advocacy skills. My parents really didn't have advocacy skills. So it was just, you know, okay, I didn't take chemistry. I was told a blind person couldn't do it. Now, of course, I've met PhDs in chemistry who are blind, chemistry professors who are blind. You know, successful uh, chemist like Dan Berlin, who started and ran and sold his own company. So, um, you know, less, less, lesson in hindsight. Um, and again, we didn't have, we weren't connected to the council. We weren't connected to the federation. We didn't have any resources. So um, for young people today, there are many, many advocates who can help you on this stuff. And they're easy to find thanks to the internet. Um, so we, the, you know, colleges would come and make their presentations and you know, we'd always want to get out of class to go to the presentation. So a guy from Whitman College in Walla Walla came and it's a small private liberal arts school um, with a you know, good regional reputation. And he asked me to stay after class, uh, after the session. And he said, you know, we are um, 
affiliated with a foundation called the Jesse Ridley Foundation out of New York. And we are one of the schools that they will provide full ride scholarships to blind students. And we've never had a blind student. And if you would like to apply, I think we can get you that scholarship. So that, that was my college decision making process. So I you know, applied for one school, I got a full ride scholarship. Um, again, mostly through no fault of my own, but uh, I, I remember I'd have to write them a letter every semester, send my transcript. I had to ma maintain a 325. I'd have to tell them what I learned and what I planned to learn uh, the next semester and then how much tuition and room and board was, and then they would send me a check. So it was pretty cool as an 18-year-old to get you know, a $22,000 check in the mail. It's still pretty cool, Kirk. <laughs> I, so I, I, would, I would bank it. I would get a $100 bill, and I would go to the Fawcett Tavern, which was in the basement of the Marcus Whitman Hotel. They didn't, they didn't card. So, there you have it. Um, so it's a good student. Um, another, th another thing, you know, I didn't get a lot of support from the Commission for the Blind, but I, I, I got – you know, I could hire readers. So again, as a you know, 17, 18 year old, I, I was interviewing readers, you know, managing their time, firing some of them, um, you know, tracking time, submitting invoices. And, you know, looking back on it, that's, that's an experience that, you know, my other classmates uh, weren't having. So that, that was a, I think another success factor is the opportunity to, to have those responsibilities. Um, Graduated cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa, started applying for jobs. Um, I think doors closing or was said by a couple of people. Uh, lots of doors closed. Um, I wasn't mm -hmm. disclosing my blindness in my cover letter and resume. I'd get a phone interview. Uh, I'd be asked to come in for an in-person interview. Um, I was clear I wanted, I wanted to work and live in Seattle. Most Public transportation was not available in the towns I grew up in. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I get the phone interview, I'd go in for the in-person, I'd have my cane, I'd have my little uh, pad of braille paper and my slate and stylus, <laughs> I could take some notes and, um, you know, confusion would sit in on the room. I, I was applying mostly for financial analyst type positions. And as many of us have experienced, the person across the table could not imagine how a blind person could do the job that I was applying for. So then I started disclosing in my cover letter, I'm blind, this is how I do what I do, this is how I'll do the job. And then I wasn't even getting the phone interviews. And um, I applied, started casting my net wider and wider. I applied for a position at a small family-owned brokerage firm in Seattle. The sales manager had also gone to Whitman College, was also an econ major, had some common professors. He called them. They said, yes, of course, he can. He can sell tax-free municipal bonds over the phone. So that's what I did for 10 years, 50 cold calls a day, every day, mm. straight, co straight commission. And uh, you learned how to do the asks, didn't you? I learned how to do worked, that. Worked well for development later no on in your career. A, a, a no was just a three quarters yes. Dan, that's, good. that's what I was taught. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but, you know, I was able to get married and buy a house and have our kids. And then when I turned 30, I really decided I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. I got the What Color Is Your Parachute book out of the Talking Book and Braille Library. I followed all the exercises, and, it, and the conclusion was I should be in the nonprofit sector. 
I should be in a leadership role um, and I should be working on behalf of creating opportunities for people who are blind and it should be in Seattle. So, um, <laughs> that was pretty specific. Luckily they had a, they, they, wow. had, they had a lighthouse there. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> a couple, couple more steps and I'll try to try to be brief, but, um, I followed the book's advice and I, I, uh, identified some CEOs of nonprofits and Seattle that I respected and I asked the CEOs for informational interviews and asked, you know, how, how did you get into the field? What would you suggest? And I, I had an interview with a woman. I honestly cannot remember her name, but she was the CEO of Planned Parenthood of Western Washington. And she'd also been a securities broker. And she just said, you know, the best way for you to enter this field is become a professional fundraiser. There's such a crying demand for it. And you've just spent 10 years talking to wealthy people about financial matters. And it's a very transferable skill. So I started applying for fundraising jobs and was not getting them because I had no experience. And the newsletter came from the Washington Talking, Talking Book and Braille Library. Said, we need to raise $200,000 or cancel our evergreen radio reading service. I contacted the librarian I'd known for years. I'm a heavy, heavy NLS user. And explained this to her and said, how about I volunteer 20 hours a week to raise the 200 grand, that'll give me something on my resume. And um, again, back to research, um, work experience, as far as a predictor of successful employment, volunteer work experience is just as valuable as paid work experience as far as being a predictor of success. So if you can't find a paid job, volunteer. Um, so I, did that. I wrote some grant proposals. Um, some checks came in, some beginner's luck, and they offered me a position. They created a job for me. My first nonprofit job was with the Seattle Public Library Foundation, raising money for the statewide talking book and Braille library. Did that for about three and a half years, went back to school, and, you know, determined nonprofit was the life for me. So I went back and got a master's in not-for-profit leadership. Had a couple different Fundraising jobs. I was development director for a large nonprofit childcare agency, and I got a call from someone from the Lighthouse for the Blind, saying they wanted to start a fundraising program. They wanted to start a foundation. They'd heard there was a blind guy in town who knew how to do that. So, mm. my wife and I went in for a tour and an interview, and I, like others, really had no knowledge of Ability One or what it was all about. I knew it had something to do with employment. But at the Lighthouse in Seattle, I have a long-time contract with the Boeing company and um, deaf blind and deafblind machinists using com you know, computer numerically controlled machining equipment and making parts and a large deafblind program and a lot of tactile sign language interpreting going on. I thought it, thought it was cool. And we walked out the front door and my wife said, you have to come work here. So um, I was hired to start that fundraising program. And I think like, like, like Ken, the organization had a goal of having a blind leader, a blind person in that CEO role. Um, organization had been around since 1918. The leadership had always been cited. And my predecessor, a gentleman named George Jacobson, he was very determined there would be a blind person to succeed him after 25 years. So um, after I kind of proved my worth and my value, as I told my kids when they got their first jobs, make, make yourself indispensable. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they created a position for me that hadn't existed before called general manager of administration. So I had HR reporting to me and marketing and communications and strategic planning and support of the board and things like that. So I did that for several years. Um, George announced his retirement. The company hired a search firm. They hired me and I did not have CEO level experience. I had some management experience. I had never run a you know, major P&L. But it was a you know twenty seven million dollar a year company at that that point, and they put a very deliberate plan in place um, where we analyzed we did a gap analysis of what knowledge skills and abilities did I need to be successful and where was I at on each of those and then put in a they hired someone to do this and put in a development plan for me uh, again so I could be qualified to apply it was not a guaranteed deal but. They hired a search firm. I put my name forward. I was offered the fabulous opportunity to be president and CEO of the organization. I did that for eight years, and we you know, grew nicely. We did a strategic plan. We followed it. We increased employment, increased wages, and increased programs. So it was a very good experience. I'm almost done, Dan. It's a very interesting story. I've been, I've been story. working a long time. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, uh, when I was hired, the person who hired me said, if, you know, I didn't really know the blindness field, said, if you want to know the blindness field, you got to go to the American Foundation for the Blind Conference. So I went to my first leadership conference in D.C. in 2001. It was called Telling Your Story with Statistics. Um, university researchers presenting program directors from around the country. I was so impressed and I, I uh, never missed an AFB leadership conference. I've been to everyone since 2001. I think I went to 15 before I became staff. And the next one will be May 2nd and 3rd in Arlington, Virginia, for all of you out there who want to experience a, a, a great gathering of uh, dedicated, passionate, smart people. Um, Went to the conference, was asked to join a program committee, was asked to join the board. And then kind of similarly, uh, in a way, my, my predecessor at AFB, Carl Augusto, had been there 20 plus years. He announced uh, his retirement to the board. Board hired a search firm. I resigned from the board and put my name forward. And you know, after a process, I was offered the opportunity to, to, to come to AFB. So uh, speaking of spouses and love, dedication in may of 2016 my wife and i left our lovely home and yard and garden here in seattle and moved into a tiny apartment in brooklyn (laughs) where i took the f train to the a train to penn station every day and went up to the afb offices and we did a strategic plan and closed the new york offices opened a small headquarters in arlington virginia we then moved to virginia and lived in a an apartment for three years and then COVID uh, you know had me working at the dining room table and in this apartment in Crystal City and uh, my wife said I am going home to Seattle if you would like to join me please do <laughs> come on to- <laughs> we'll- come on with <laughs> there'll be a place waiting for you honey yeah. so we're, so we're, I'm back in our house we bought a 1990 here where I we we raised our kids and Mm-hmm. I, I, I guess the other little, it, I believe leadership is the tool and is the lever that is going to move things in the right direction. So 
you know, I, I, I'm fortunate to be in a position like others on this call to lead an organization that can really make a difference. And I um, really felt that I should do whatever I need to do to maximize my ability to have impact as a leader. So I, I did start a PhD program in 2010 and uh, I finished, I was on the, eight, originally on the four-year plan, it ended up being an eight-year plan, but I, I did earn my doctorate in leadership and change in 2019. And, um, you know, I learned a lot through that process and so much is applicable to um, the job I have. So. Fantastic. What a, what a journey. That's absolutely it. amazing. Uh, we're all learning new things about each other tonight. It's wonderful. I, Last year, when we did the fireside chat, everybody said, Dan, you didn't ever say anything about yourself. And so I, I promised this year I'd at least tell a little bit of my story. So I'll, I'll try to do the abridged version like the, the, the rest of you. So, um, you know, I was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosis when I was six years old. And it's one of those things that, you know, you're going to go blind someday. But, you know, when you're six years old and you still see pretty well and you're running around the neighborhood and playing with all the kids. I didn't really think all that much about it. When I went to school, I always got to sit on the front row. Uh, so didn't realize there was any other place to sit in a classroom my entire life, except for the front row <laughs> until I got to college and my vision got so bad. It didn't matter whether I sat on the front row or the back row. And then I realized when I went to the back row, cause I just defiant and dang gum it. I was going to go sit on the back row that you learned a lot more on the front row, but anyway, that, <laughs> but, uh, so I kind of, you know, went through public school, uh, same thing. I had, um, light really bothered my eyes. So I had like three different pairs of sunglasses, you know, depending on whether I was outside in the bright light, or I was in a Publix grocery store with a fluorescent light, or, you know, I was always changing sunglasses back and forth. And, um, really didn't get much support or services from our division of blind services here in Florida. And then went to uh, the university of Florida and uh, studied business. And at that point in time, kind of like you all are sharing, you know, I, I was kind of getting by the best I could. And so finally it got to be my, uh, my senior. Well, I'll tell you the other thing while I was doing that, I went and got a job um, at the end of my, high school career, uh, high school uh, degree, uh, working at Disney as a part-time employee. So I would work in the summers and Christmases, spring vacations. So when you weren't going to college was the time that Disney really needed extra people. And I worked in the character department. And that was back in the late 70s. They were in America on parade. And so the employees at Disney, not that the high school students came and did all the parade, but the employees were actually the ones that, that drove the floats in the parade. But I couldn't drive because I was legally blind. And so there was one job to be an employee in the character department and not drive a float. And that was to be a World War I fighting ace up on the top of a big transportation float with a big four foot head. So you would sit, they'd take a forklift and put me up there and seat belt me in, in this airplane. And I'd go down main street, waving my arms feverishly back and forth. And I got so exuberant one night that when I shifted to the left, my head popped off. 
and <laughs> flash bulbs are just going off everywhere. And I'm like, acting like a complete dork and waving back and forth. <laughs> we got to Frontierland Bridge and they climbed up on the float and stuck the head back on my head. <laughs> so, so you never knew what was going to happen to you, you know, in life. But it was, um, so then when I got my degree at the University of Florida, I had to decide, you know, was I going to, um, I got offered a job. This was like a t- turning point in my life. I got offered a job to be the permanent Main Street Goofy. And my mom was like, take that job. You've been going to school forever. You need to go to, you know, real work. And I was like, at the same time, I got accepted back into the MBA program at the University of Florida. So I said, wow, an opportunity to go to Gainesville for a couple more football seasons. I'm so I turned down the job at Disney and went back to school at the University of Florida and just stayed as a temporary employee at Disney. No Main Street Goofy for Dan? No Main Street Goofy. <laughs> Although I will say the coolest thing I got to do as Main Street Goofy is one day, you know, oh God, I was a huge, um, you know, uh, fan of music. And, and, and so they invite me back behind the castle for a special guest. And it's Jimmy Buffett and his wife and his little three-year-old daughter. And so I'm in Brer Bear that day. And so Jimmy Buffett comes up to me. You're not allowed to talk, you know, when you're in these costumes. You, you got to be in, in, you know, in character. Right. And so Jimmy Buffett comes up to me and he says, Brer Bear, can my daughter have your autograph? And I'm thinking, this is the strangest thing in life that I am giving Jimmy Buffett my autograph as Brer Bear. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, Disney Dan, was kind of, yeah. Dan, I'm a huge Buffett fan, so I, I appreciate that. We're actually going to go see him for the first time ever in August. So, Oh, I have mm. seen him countless times in concert. Yeah. You know, I, I'm an unofficial parrot head. I actually love Buffett. But, uh, yeah, you'll enjoy it. It'll be a, it'll be a great yeah. time. He's not getting any younger, but none of us are. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So I ended up going, get my MBA, concentrating in accounting at the University of Florida. Back then, they didn't offer the CPA exam in large print or any accessible standards. You know, it's before the ADA. And so uh, I get an interview that Cindy will appreciate this. I get an interview with Exxon and there's eight of us out of the MBA, MBA program that they fly to Houston to do a two-day interview and you put it up in a big hotel and you get to see underground Houston and we go to a, what that time was a Houston Oilers football game and all this stuff. So we get back, the other seven individuals who flew there with me for the interviews all got offered jobs and I didn't. Shocking, right? As a blind person, they're like, oh, you, you're, you're, you can't see, you can't drive. I said, no. And so, um, so then I said, well, I'll go back to Disney. You know, I worked for them for seven years. I've got my MBA. They'll offer me a job. They said, well, Dan, uh, we can offer you a job in the accounting department. I said, fantastic. As an accounts payable clerk, we can start you at $2 and 40 cents an hour. And I'm like, but I have my MBA. And they said, well, we just need you to, you know, kind of make sure that, that you can prove that you can do work here at Disney. I'm like, well, I've been working for you for seven years. I said, well, that's just, but that was different work. You were in the character department and now you're going to be in business. And I said, oh, okay. So being the, you know, 
I don't know what you'd say, a little, little frustrated by the whole thing. My high school uh, friend and I opened up a pizza restaurant. I had never made a pizza before in my life, but my college roommate, Lou Nostro, his family owned three pizza parlors and Italian restaurants in the Orlando area. So Kirk, what you're talking about, I spent the next four months volunteering every day in their restaurant for them to teach me the recipes and how to make the food and how to, you know, uh, uh, deal with customers and, you know, all of that interfacing. And then at the end of that time, we spent about, we, we found a location, borrowed money, built our own uh, little pizza parlor next to our Cumberland Farms. And we opened up DG's Pizza. The D st stood for Dan, the G stood for Jerry, and we put eyes in it to make it look more Italian because we're both, you know, German descent. And uh, we ran that pizza parlor for like, the, you know, the next seven years. We built a second location. Uh, I learned so much. I learned how to deal with employees. I learned, uh, you know, how to do inventory, uh, just uh, how to deal with customers, irate customers, employees that didn't show up for work. Um, we had to continue to innovate. We, we created a whole wall of VHS videos at that point in time. So we were the first people in town to start delivering pizzas and we deliver you uh, a VHS movie with your pizza and also go next door to the Cumberland Farms and bring you a gallon of milk if you wanted it. And uh, so of course, over time, my vision kept getting worse and worse and worse and I was unable to you know, see to, to make the pizzas as well and, uh, and do those type of uh, uh, jobs. And so, and Domino's came in and they really started disrupting our business. So at that point in time, I went back to the community college and took a class called high-tech training for the disabled, where we went for nine months, nine to five. It was all disabled people. It was the fourth year of the program, but the first time they ever tried to let a blind person in because they finally got a little bit of synthetic speech going that, uh, you know, that they could do with the old uh, apples. And, um, and so I took this program for nine months. Uh, it was a mainframe computer programming class with Cobalt, JCL. But what it did, it offered you, if you graduated from the nine-month program, you got an unpaid three-month internship with one of the major companies that were part of the Business Advisory Council in the Orlando area. So at the end of those three months, I got offered an internship at Westinghouse Electric and uh, went and did that. And then at the end of the three months, they offered me the lowest paying job they could offer me, the minimum of the entry-level position to be in the IT department. And I was happy to take it. It was like 2100 still remember to this day, $2,100 a month, $25,200 a year. And I was on probation for the first three months. Uh, it was so funny. There was like seven or eight of us that started at the same time. And they had had me interview. It was like 4,000 people in this campus and, you know, 100,000 people that worked for Westinghouse. And our business uh, unit's uh, chief financial officer, who was responsible for accounting and the IT department, actually interviewed me. His name was Art Vedner. And so one of the first days in the cafeteria, 
Mr. Vedner walked by and I said, hello, Mr. Vedner. And he said, hi, Dan. And all the people who started with me said, you, this is when I first learned this, that there's some real advantages to being blind uh, because you, you stand out and people, you, you, you're visible, you know, in a, in a organization where you're the only blind person, you, you really, um, you don't hide, you know, you're, you really do stand out. And so my peers at Starbucks said, you know, the CEO of, you know, power generation at Westinghouse. I said, yeah, I, I had an interview with him. You all didn't have interviews with him. They said, no, <laughs> but he wanted to make sure that I was qualified to do the job. And so at the end of the day, I always felt like it was somewhat an advantage to be blind and that, um, Every time I went into a meeting and I met people for the first time, they, they looked at me usually saying, why, why is the blind guy here? What's going on? And my goal always was within, within a month, I want them to be able to say, if we're going to have that meeting, we need to invite Dan Spoon to that meeting because he's adding value. You know, what can I do to add value? And, um, you know had a wonderful career at Westinghouse. We got bought nine years later by Siemens Energy, stayed for 25 years, um, you know, got, uh, you know, after those first five to seven years, when you're just learning, I had like four promotions in the next five years. And so it was really an interesting journey. Um, you know, as my vision did get worse, I finally got introduced to JAWS. Uh, you know, I had to transition from, uh, you know, from the low vision, you know, the, the CCTVs and, and that type of stuff. But what you learned as you went further and further along in your career, um, I, I always felt my vision had less of a role the higher I went up in the organization because they, at that point, are so completely hiring you for your skills and your brain, you know? There's many people on your team that can do you know, the, the task of word processing or uh, crunching spreadsheets or preparing presentations, you know, it's, it's your ideas and your thoughts that they're paying you for as you go further up in your career and your leadership skills and your project management skills. So uh, I wanted to kind of give you all that kind of maybe as your next thought or story uh, to share with us as you've gone up through your career how have you seen your blindness play a role for you? And have you seen that you've had to adapt and create new skills as you've gone up the leadership ladder? And uh, Ken, we'll, we'll start with you. Yeah, and, and I would agree 100% with what you just described, Dan, that you know, the, the more senior you become in an organization, you know, the, the blindness just isn't, isn't an issue. Obviously, you need to be able to function Mm-hmm. on the day-to-day task, but I, that's become less and less of an issue. Um, I, I think for me and probably for organizations like like ours, that having somebody in a leadership role, especially in a CEO uh, role as, as a blind person, is just, the, just the, the best example that can be set for you know, all of our stakeholders and, and employees that you, you can achieve um, that this the highest level is somebody who's blind and, and the, the fact that, you know, you can't see as well as somebody else or not see at all 
becomes less and less of an impact as, as you become more senior. So that, mm-hmm. that would be my thought on that part of it. Yeah. And, and um, let me ask you, so because Kurt has had an opportunity to, to change jobs several times, and so has Cindy. It sounds like uh, you, once you and Eric have gotten more established, you stayed in your same positions. Mm-hmm. Do you think, is it, is it easier or harder to, to take that next step in your career or, or look for other opportunities when, you've, when you are blind or low vision? Or do you think that's um, not a barrier? Um, I think it's absolutely a, a barrier. And again, you know, I've, I've been with the same organization for 30 plus years, but mm-hmm. taking the steps within my organization, you know, that they're not given to you. You, you have to earn them. Um, yeah. and, and it's regardless of, of being somebody who is visually impaired or blind within a blindness organization, you still have to bring value. Um, as Kirk said, you have to make yourself indispensable um, regardless of that. So, it, you know, s- stepping into a, an organization outside of where my career has been, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, prior to, to working where I am, I mean, I, did have uh, a handful of jobs as a young person and it was always difficult making that transition in, into a new workplace and, you know, proving yourself, um, mm-hmm. you know, as, you know, blindness aside, your, your face would prove in yourself already in, in a new organization. And then you throw the blindness or vision loss on top of that. And it just it gives you one more level that you have to demonstrate that you, you can get past Mm, yep. Cindy, what, what have been your experiences? So I, I would agree with, with uh, everything that's been said. Um, for me, you know, it's, it's been interesting. I, you know, making the decision intentionally um, after the fellowship program to really pursue my career in serving people with vision loss within the Ability One program and and or, or the broader blindness industry, I would say, um, you know, I, I just really embrace taking on um, leadership roles and opportunities to serve uh, nationally on committees, uh, boards, any, any opportunity that I had above and beyond my day job really opened so many doors for me um, to develop mentors, both blind and sighted. Uh, leaders that were mentors and sponsors to me. And so I've just been really blessed with opportunities come my way um, along the way. And oftentimes when I wasn't even looking at what was next uh, just yet and, and stretching, stretching my own imagination (laughs) about, um, you know, what my, what my career aspirations were. I mean, if you'd asked me 15 years ago, you know, are you going to be a CEO one day? I would have probably laughed. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, honestly, I think what I've learned is that, you know, my biggest barrier has been the self-limiting, um, you know, mindset and overcoming that has really been tremendous and empowering for me, uh, both personally and professionally. Um but, you know, it also has been unique experience, you know, going into a new role, going into a new organization, like mm-hmm. Ken said, you have to prove yourself just because you're in the blindness industry. 
it doesn't mean you get, you know, a, a nice little paved way. <laughs> right. You still have to prove yourself. And, and there's often sometimes people that question whether or not you can do the job as a person who's blind, even in our field, which is maddening, but it's true. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, having the opportunity that I had to, um, you know, follow in Kirk's footsteps um, at the Lighthouse for the Blind headquartered in Seattle I mean, you know, he really paved the way for me in terms of having systems and processes and mindset um, about having a leader who's blind um, in the CEO role. Um, Now I'm at the San Antonio Lighthouse and I'm the first female and the first blind CEO. And that's a really unique uh, situation for me. And I'm finding that there's a lot of things that I need to change both to create um, create a, a working environment where I can thrive, but also to eliminate barriers to create more opportunities for the next generation leaders that I hope to have the opportunity to develop. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's my comment. And did you, you mentioned getting that self-confidence. So did you have like an aha moment with Man, I can do this stuff as good as anybody else. Did you have that, like, you know, that epiphany, like, wait a minute, I can do this. Oh, oh, you know, it's interesting. I think it was evolution over, over the years. Um, Mm -hmm. I do, I I can recall um, multiple times throughout my career going, okay, you you got, you have this, like you, you could do this, you know, Mm -hmm. everyone else believes in you. Why don't you believe in yourself? And so um, I think the more you have experience, the more you have success, uh, and the more you, you know, have failures and learn from them, the stronger you become professionally and the more confidence that you build over time. I mean, it, it comes with experience. It comes with, you know, both successes and failures. And I think you learn more from your failures. I, I oh, truly God, do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, yeah. You can, you can, you can, you can get kind of a uh, full of yourself when things are going good, you know? And Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. So Eric, what, uh, you know, what are your thoughts in this area? Yeah. So I, the role that I had when I was hired by ACB is a very visible role uh, to, to ACB, to its membership, but also to the rest of the uh, blind community and disability community overseeing governmental affairs and, and advocacy. Uh, and was fortunate to have the opportunity to uh, know, work with a team of people from the from the disability community to pass a a bill into law called the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act in in 2010. And what dawned on me through that negotiation, uh, we were negotiating uh, with much of the rest of uh, the technology sector at the time, because this law would impact companies like Google and Apple and Comcast. And at the time, Time Warner and AOL and all these large uh, multinational corporations. And we were meeting with them and negotiating the, the language and uh, we got the, we got the bill signed into law and it was outstanding. And, uh, then it came time to to begin to implement that through the through the regulatory process, and what what I I came to a pretty quick understanding about was that if we were going to get these companies to actually uh, 
not just comply with the the letter of the law, but to actually make their products more accessible to us, we needed to form relationships with them and not just do the kind of classic advocacy uh, type route where we, you know, yell at them or show up with a with a lawyer or what have you, which the disability community has traditionally done with with corporate America and at times with very good reason, right? Um, but rather to offer a hand in collaboration to figure out how we could work with them to to make their product or service more accessible to us, given that it was already going to be required. And so we forged really excellent relationships with some of the largest companies in the world, starting in, you know, through the, through the course of that negotiation and then into 2012, 2013, 2014. And lo and behold, what happened was the, the arc of the advocacy that, that ACB was doing was evolving uh, to, to, better meet the needs, at least in this area of our advocacy, of our community. And so being able to to have really good and frank discussions with these companies who had become our partners, had seen the value in the relationship that, that had been built, had begun to attend our conventions, had begun to sponsor our events, had uh, you know sought us out to, to provide focus groups for uh, products or services that they were looking to, to launch at some point in the future. Um, these were all, all things that were now happening. And as, as that was evolving, the, the, the job became quite a lot larger than when I had come initially in 2007. And, mm-hmm. but, but a lot of it was necessary. Uh, because we had this law and we had these, these requirements and, um, we could have just sat back and and let, you know, the, the, the letter of the, of the regulations sort of rule the day, but that would have meant a pretty low compliance bar. And, and a, a lot of folks probably would not have been all that thrilled, um, with the level of accessibility that they would have experienced. And I'm not saying everything is perfect today. It's, it's far from it. But what, what I would argue is that us uh, taking that uh, sort of deploying that strategy to engage actively and partner and collaborate where possible with uh, portions of corporate America has, has, uh, brought greater accessibility uh, in employment and in education, as well as entertainment, um, than we've had uh, at any time in, in recent history. And so, uh, you know, it, it, it continued on when I was interviewed by the, by the uh, search committee for the board um, and had the opportunity to talk with them about what I had been up to. And it sort of didn't, I mean, I, I understood what I was doing, um, but it sort of hit me at that point that my job had had never gone away from advocacy and governmental affairs, but it had sort of transformed itself necessarily. And now there was a, a relationship management, uh, even uh, you could argue through the advocacy work we were doing, there was a development component that had grown out of it. 
Mm -hmm. uh, where we had started to raise significant amounts of money for our convention, our annual convention. And so while I didn't have uh, budget responsibility and I didn't have experience with that or with other aspects of being a CEO or executive director, um, I had I had grown the job that I had into something that was um, different than what I had come with. Um, and I had provided real value to the organization. And, uh, you know, I was uh, offered the position and I gladly accepted. Fantastic. We're glad and you did. Continue to learn since. <laughs> <laughs> Always. We, you never stop learning, right? No. So, Kirk, how about how about you? Where what are your thoughts in this area? Uh boy, so many. Um, first off, let's give a shout out to Lighthouse for the Blind Inc. in Seattle, Washington. They gave me an opportunity to be a CEO for the first time. They gave Cindy an opportunity, and now George Abbott, also a former AFB staff person, is in his first CEO position here in Seattle. So, organizations. Um, who lead, uh, who have a commitment to develop blind leadership and create opportunities for blind people to be in, in, in leadership roles. Um, there aren't, there aren't enough. Um, I, uh, Ken said his organization was intentional about that. AFB obviously has always had a you know, blind chief executive as, as had ACB. So there, there, there aren't that many. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at our field, um, you see a very small percentage of agencies being led by people who are blind, very small percentage of board members being people who are blind. And then when you look outside of our field, um, uh, it's, 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 <laughs> it's been kind of a non-starter. So, you yeah. know, we know 35% of working age blind adults are in the workforce, you know, half the workforce participation rate of the general population. And again, we're research, we're research folks at AFB. So over half the blind people who are employed work for government and nonprofit. So which yeah, which makes is sense. which is a beautiful yep. thing. Yep. But when you look at the corporate side of things and you look at the C-suite, I'd say they're statistically zero blind blind mm -hmm. individuals and you know the, the the Fortune 100 anyway. And then um, when I did my dissertation, I interviewed. Um, you know, blind adults who self-identified as being successfully employed at, at major corporations and all of them had their stories, but there were themes. And one of the main themes was disappointment. People were disappointed that they weren't able to move up the org chart uh, more briskly. They were disappointed that people who um, they felt added less value to their organization were, were being promoted and, and given, given opportunities for more responsibility that, that they weren't. So I, I have the utmost respect for everyone on this call, um, what you've done, what you're doing. Um, I, I would say we're a, we're a pretty small subset here. And um, I really, you know, my, 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 I guess my soapbox would be within our field, uh, more organizations need to do what uh, they did in Binghamton and what they did in Seattle. And that's be intentional about helping people who are blind build the capacity and the capability to be uh, in the positions to be, to be considered for these leadership roles. And then, then to take some risks. Um, there were risks taken 
um, that have furthered the careers of you know, pe people in this chat and uh, and a handful of others out there. But uh, we, we, we certainly need more organizations to step up. Um, we know who the organizations are in the field. We also know how old the CEOs are. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's opportunity. There's going to be, there's gonna be a nice wave of open opportunities here. So um, you know, from, from whatever position of influence we're, we're in, I, I think it's incumbent upon us as leaders in the blindness field to um, help support other organizations in, in uh, creating these opportunities. Fantastic. I'm going to try and keep you all not just a couple extra minutes, but I want to end this on kind of a funny note. So uh, I'll go first, but I want everybody to kind of think of a, a good blind story that kind of might have been embarrassing, might have been a little uh, different, uh, but you had to kind of roll with in a leadership position. And, and I'll go first while you guys think. And, um, you know, I was, uh, you know, m managing several projects at, uh, towards the end of my career at Siemens, and one of them was a global project. And so uh, we were implementing a, a solution that to, to really help manage what we called our long-term program fleet, was, which was about a uh, $12 billion fleet worldwide. And, it, and you know, liquidated damages could be $100,000 a day if you didn't get these power plants serviced on time. So it became really mission critical uh, for us to develop uh, a process and a system to be able to easily estimate at any point in time how we were doing on our outages, we were staying on budget, do we have the resources we needed. So I was running a, a project team to kind of create the, you know, the, the solution, the IT solution for, um, you know, for, for this long-term program um, package and uh, packages. And so we had a team that we had put together of both, uh, you know, folks from America and folks from Germany, and we were meeting at the, you know, this, the top of the, you know, the C-suite over in, uh, in uh, Erlangen, Germany, which was the world headquarters for the Siemens Power Generation business unit. And so uh, the team had already assembled. We had, you know, typically you'd have the Americans on one side and the Germans on the other side. And, and in Germany, it was always a very nice custom that you started every meeting by walking around and shaking each other's hands, you know, kind of clockwise counterclockwise as you, you know, kind of sat down to run the meeting. Well, I uh, was detained in another meeting, so I was late getting to the, the project review. And so they had saved me a seat at the end of the table and the meeting was already under, underway. And, uh, you know, the kind of the, one of our other leads was kind of going through the list, uh, you know, the checklist of critical items and where we were on the different items. So I sat down at the end of the table and we, you know, typical fashion, everything is done, at least at that point in time, you know, 10 years ago in corporate America was done with PowerPoint, PowerPoint slides on a projector, on a wall, you know, and everybody is sitting around and following uh, on the PowerPoint presentation. So I, I, I walk into the meeting, I'm sitting at the end of the table and we're going down, you know, item, they're on my item two or three. And of course, item four, I had a question on, you know, when will we get those resources? You know, how sure are we that the resources will be provided? So I always had this thing in my head. Even though I couldn't see the PowerPoint slide, I could see the, the square of light, you know, that, and so I would, 
you know, point to the PowerPoint and say, all right, item number four, what are we going to do? Uh, you know, Joe, when are those resources going to get done? Uh, Winfred, where do we think we're at here? And, you know, so we went down and I don't know, we were on about line seven or eight. And one of the guys who I'd known for a long time, he actually was on our team, but he had actually hired me at Westinghouse, uh, one of the, my original mentor when, when, uh, you know, I started at Westinghouse and John all of a sudden yells out in the meeting, Dan, stop. And I'm like, boy, John, you're kind of being insubordinate here. I'm thinking to myself, we're in the middle of a meeting. He said, stop, you got to stop now. And I said, why do I have to stop now, John? He says, because you keep pointing to that open window on the right side of the room and everybody looks over there every time you point. The PowerPoint is on the other wall. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, sorry about that. Thanks. And everybody broke out laughing and we had the best meeting. <laughs> he, he said, every time you point to that window, everybody turns around and looks over there. <laughs> so anyway, you never know what's going to happen to you when you can't see. <laughs> so, who wants to go next? <laughs> <laughs> I know everybody's had one of those moments. <laughs> well, um, I, I was at a meeting at Google with uh, the guy that oversaw uh, Google search. He's not there anymore. His name is Alan Eustace, and he was one of the senior leaders of Google. And uh, he came in and uh, it was myself and somebody else from ACB and like four or five Google employees. And we we're having this great meeting and he got up to say goodbye and he shook my hand and my guide dog got up and proceeded to puke on the floor on oh, his foot. So yeah, good times. Oh, Eric, nice I don't meeting. know if I ever, I ever shared <laughs> this with you, but I went to high school with Alan Hustis. We graduated together. He's like the most famous alumni from my high school. No way. Yeah. Maynard Evans High School in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> he was a very quiet guy in high school. It, you know, wasn't really. He's a nice man. I met with him a few times. He, he oversaw all the engineering for a period of time at Google and then oversaw search and uh he kind of helped know. develop their search engine back absolutely in the day, i think yeah he left a very wealthy man yeah. i'm sure he did yeah <laughs> all right okay i'll go next okay city. um so um so just a quick aside so one of the major development opportunities for me as i was progressing in my leadership roles was um public speaking i mm -hmm. had this absolute terror fear of speaking in front of large groups. And so um, I got involved in the uh, Toastmasters organization um, in Winston-Salem, got really involved, I got involved in leadership, went to state competition. I mean, I just like really leaned in because I knew that I needed to overcome and develop skill to work through this, this paralyzing fear that I had of speaking in public. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I did that and I built some confidence, although I was still terrified whenever I got in front of groups and, um, I was asked to present, um, and I knew that this was a development opportunity, <laughs> um, to present to the board. I didn't have board facing, um, relationship at that point in my career. So being asked to participate in a board meeting and to present to the board was a big deal for me at that time. And so I was asked to 
to give an overview of a couple of the projects that I was working on. And so one of the projects that I was working on was this uh, U.S. Coast Guard t-shirt, um, which is an, it was a navy blue t-shirt. It had some embroidery that's the U.S. Coast Guard. And so I'm describing the t-shirt the and I said, you know, the embroidery on, your, on their left breast. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't even realize what I had said. I was probably just so nervous. I was taught anyway. So there was a little bit of a chuckle in the room, but I didn't, I just didn't uh, register until after the meeting when um, someone had <laughs> given me the, <laughs> let me know what I had actually said and what I, instead of what I meant to say. So not necessarily blindness specific, but definitely embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, all right, Kidder, Kurt, you got, you got something for us? Well, yeah, it's, not, it's not... not as high level as some of these other examples, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I was at the lighthouse. I was the development director and we were in Washington, DC, um, visiting our legislators to talk about an earmark for our deaf blind program. So some of you remember earmarks. And our mm -hmm. dear, dear Senator Patty Murray uh, helped initiate a several million dollar earmark for our deaf blind program. But it was the first time I, I was there, I think, and you know, it's very confusing. Every building has a different numbering system and um, all those mar long, long marble hallways. And uh, between meetings, I needed to visit the men's room. So you know, we, we had some sighted folks with us, sighted guys. So, hey, you know, we had 15 minutes for our next meet. I need a men's room. So I walk into the men's room. It's huge. You could throw a dance in there. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, looking looking for the right place. So I find the sinks and paper towels and I'm using my cane doing some structured discovery. <laughs> I find a stall door. I say, that'll work. I step in and then I hear two sets of high heels um, marching briskly <laughs> into the restroom. <laughs> stall doors shut, zippers, and I bolted out of the ladies' room in the Russell <laughs> building. Russell building. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to advocacy oh. in Washington D.C. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Dan, on, on that note, I just I have nothing to follow Kirk with. That, so. I'm just, I think I'm we've sure all my walked staff into the wrong colleagues have a lot. Yes, we have. <laughs> yes, we have. Yes, but not but not using not with sighted guides. Oh my goodness! <laughs> so nothing to share, kid. Can't come up. Must must be because it's Sunday evening, and I'm just tired now. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, hey, thank you all. This has truly, truly been delightful. I I hope uh, that our membership has enjoyed it. I know I have, and uh, you know, I now feel like I I know you all so much better. So the next time I see you in, uh, you know, at the Vision Rehab. Uh, conference or uh i make you visit a vision uh serve alliance conference or at a policy forum uh i'll have a smile on my face so uh and thank you all for coming and uh we really appreciate it from uh our bottom of our heart with the american council of blind so thanks so much thank you thanks for having me dan, dan. Thanks, all, right. ACB. Thanks, dan. all right have a good evening all right bye-bye bye guys bye.